Simple Beep, episode 53, The Newton. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we're in a new year, which means that we have a little bit of follow-up from the previous year and the holiday season. We took uh, an extra week off for the holiday break, but now we're back. Yes, our previous episode during the holiday break talked a lot about stocking stuffers, Apple-related things that could fit in a stocking. And so we wanted to clue our listeners in to two things that came to our attention since we recorded. And even though the time for gift-giving and stocking stuffing might have passed us, these are still great things that uh, any fan of the classic Mac community would enjoy. The first thing we want to highlight is a notepad on Kickstarter that's like very simple stationary using the cancel and save buttons from like system six era Mac dialogues. Uh, it's, it's just what it sounds like. It's got that classic 12 point bitmap Chicago font, the save and cancel buttons at the bottom. We'll put a link to the Kickstarter project in our show notes. I'm not going to make any claims about the intellectual property or copyrights involved here, but I can say that I pre-ordered some notepads and I hope that they show up and that Apple does not bomb them out of existence. <laughs> One other thing that showed up and got a lot of attention in the classic Apple internet is a device that is an accessory for your Apple Watch. So it's, I guess that's an accessory to an accessory to your iPhone. Uh Uh, And it is a Apple Watch stand that makes your Apple Watch essentially behave as the screen of a tiny miniature classic Mac. So it's got a slot that drops in and then the screen in that horizontal orientation fits into this little, little, I guess it's like a silicone, you know, cube that's shaped like the case of the classic Mac. Uh, I don't think you have any real control over what the screen displays then because it goes into that sort of like nightstand mode. Um, but this is pretty cool. It's kind of similar to the Mac and bot that we saw, although you, you know, bring your own screen, um, and it's not quite as faithful or quite as, uh, doesn't have quite as much personality, but if you've got an Apple watch, uh, might be useful. I, I said that it looked good enough that I was considering buying one. They're like 12 bucks. I was considering getting one, even though I don't have an Apple watch, because then I would still just have this little, little classic Mac hanging around on my desk until, until Mac and bot can show up. And friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, went ahead and got one, and he does have an Apple Watch. So he was able to put together a little short video review of it, uh, which is pretty cool and shows exactly how it works. So some people may be in the market for that, and we'll link up the video in our show notes. One other thing that was an actual item of follow-up from the Stocking Stuffer episode is we were talking about the Quick Take cameras and the batteries that they ran on. And we're going to be talking about some battery-operated devices later on in the show as well. And we commented on the fact that they took three AA batteries, which is kind of an odd number that most electronic devices that we remembered from that era usually took even numbers of batteries, two or four. And apparently, I mean, this makes sense from the very, very little bit of electronics, you know, like, uh, electrical physics that I remember from high school is that when you take batteries and you put them together, the voltages are additive and every double A AA or triple A battery is 1.5 volts. So if you put them together into a device, they put them in, in the circuit and it adds up the number of volts. And that's what's the charge that is in the electrical system and is powering your device. 
And so apparently at that time, a lot of electronics required 5 volts. But since the standard batteries were 1.5 volts, you had to add up to a number that was greater than 5 to get them to work. So if you put four of them together, that was six volts and that's okay. Like if there's a little bit extra voltage, you know, if it was way over voltage, you would, you know, maybe, maybe blow the circuit, but like six to five was perfect. And then as the batteries run down, their voltage decreases a little bit so that the device will still work as the batteries run down. And then there were other components that were lower voltage and the lower voltage components are kind of standard now. Uh, but were like they were like the high end components at the time that the quick take was released, and apparently it's a three point three volt device, so two batteries won't cut it because that's only three, so you're going to be underpowered. But if you go to a third battery, you're going to have plenty of power. If you went to four batteries, you would be way over. So it really is just like uh, it's just a quirk of the electronics that were being used at the time. Of course, now we tend not to think about these things as much because. So many of our devices have rechargeable batteries for convenience and for environmental purposes. So this is not something that we tend to think about a whole lot, but it actually makes sense if you look at that circuitry. And, you know, but presumably with some of the other designs, like I mentioned, the Apple keyboard that takes three batteries, like you could only, you can kind of like only fit three batteries in there. Uh, so maybe they're actually like the design and the function, you know, who, who knows which one came first. I was I was just thinking about that keyboard too. It's kind of fascinating that a full-fledged digital camera in the 90s ran on the same voltage as a, you know, ostensibly low-power Bluetooth keyboard in the late 2000s. Right, but remember Brian, you said uh from your experience using QuickTake 100 that it got like eight eight exposures. That's true. And by the time you took the eight exposures, the batteries were spent <laughs> and those were not rechargeable batteries. Like that was the end of it. Whereas that keyboard gets you like three months of keyboard time. That's true. So, so like the, the power is being depleted over a much, you know, at, at a much lower rate. Those were, uh, those were battery guzzlers. Um, those in the game boys. Oh man. So many batteries. I'm 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 still playing Pokemon Go a little bit, and the other day I w- I was out and I was like, oh I'm g- I'm gonna play. It's not too cold out here, but it was like wind chill of like five degrees <laughs> Fahrenheit for the rest of the world. It was very very cold, and uh, my iPhone's battery went from sixty percent to emergency shut off in ten minutes. No way. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was walking to lunch, and then by the time that I got to lunch, I had to like warm up my phone again, and it would power back on. It was down. It was actually at about twenty percent, but uh, the device actually got so cold that it emergency powered down. But it reminded me of when we were school kids playing Pokemon at the bus stop, and you know everybody knew that in the death of winter you could not play Pokemon at the bus stop anymore because you would just blow through a pair of double A's in five minutes, and th- that was the end of them. Yeah. I don't know if this is like follow ups or follow through or follow on whatever. Uh, as we record this today, it is January 9th, 2017. It is the 10th birthday of the iPhone. 10 years ago today, Steve Jobs announced the iPhone on stage in one of the best technological keynote presentations ever. And uh, so we'd, we'd like to wish the iPhone a happy 10th birthday. All of the the industries and careers it has spawned uh, in those 10 years, as well as 
being kind of a nice segue into our topic for this episode, the Newton, Apple's first consumer handheld electronic device. Yeah, before we move on from the iPhone, I just wanted to say that like this anniversary snuck up on me a little bit. Because in my mind, the date that stands out is the actual release date of the iPhone in June of 2007. And just remembering that there was that much distance between the announcement and the actual product release, I I don't have any real memory of it. But man, that must have felt like a long six months. <laughs> yeah. But yes, let's get to this episode's main topic, which is the Newton. And the Newton can mean more than just the devices that uh, that carried the Newton name. Newton was a platform. Like we'll get into mentions of the software, the ecosystem. There was even a clone or licensing program. So this is a this is a pretty big topic, and we're going to start by talking about a little bit of the history of the broader Newton project. And a lot of this is taken from an excellent article on lowendmac.com about the kind of like the history leading up to the Newton's final release, final 1.0 release, that is. Uh, So that article will definitely be linked to in our show notes. But to get started, the ideas that would eventually coalesce into the Newton message pad handheld have roots in pretty much mid-80s Apple, almost on the heels of the successful launch of the Macintosh. Jean-Louis Gasset, uh, who is a name you've probably heard of if you're in the classic Mac and classic Apple circle, was a high-ranking employee at Apple. And like basically on the heels of the Mac, he recruited another uh, soon-to-be Apple employee, Steve Sackerman from HP, to start another Skunk Works project within the Apple company to start thinking about uh, something other than the Mac, not a desktop computer with like the paradigm of the mouse and the graphical user interface. Because, you know, pretty soon after the Mac came out, as sad as it is, uh, Scully and the Apple board got rid of Steve Jobs and Scully and uh, Steve Sackerman both were kind of already thinking to the future. What's going to be Apple's next big thing? Boy, history goes in cycles, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really does. <laughs> See also every every other Apple podcast currently on your device for complaining about how Apple is ignoring the Mac and looking on to something else. We won't go into that, but but this was actually the business strategy at that point. You know, th- think about uh, if if the Mac was in its current shape now and the iPhone wasn't selling a billion units, um, Apple would be looking for the next big thing, and that was that was basically the attitude that they were in. They were they were riding high. There was growth, but they uh, under Scully they thought that the Mac wasn't going to grow and grow and grow forever, and that they needed a new product category. And so, one of the logical ways to go was to go for miniaturization and a handheld device. Keeping in theme with the, the iPhone being related to the Mac today. Uh, Steve Sackerman in particular was interested in using touchscreens and uh, like for, for all the benefits that the iPhone has today, the fact that the entire interface can be adapted to the the task that you're performing. Um, so just in, in addition to uh, diversifying the product line, uh, this group that was working on a, a, the project that would eventually lead to the Newton was also interested specifically in touchscreens. 
Yeah, they were definitely pushing a lot of new technologies that are hallmarks of what we consider computing, at least mobile computing today. So the touchscreens and also early wireless networking, which, you know, at that point, even wired networking on the Mac was certainly possible, but was not something for the masses by any means. So even being able to introduce wireless networking to early adopters was something that became a little bit of a hot button issue as the Newton was being developed because there was, it sounds like the project had uh, quite a bit of scope creep over, over its life. Uh, and as we know that, you know, for a handheld device, we expect that a handheld device will, for whatever reason, be the same price or lower than a full-fledged computer, whether that be a desktop like a like the Macs in the mid-80s or a desktop or laptop like the computers of today. We expect that uh, even though the devices are miniaturized and serve different functions and have different abilities, that smaller equals less dollars. And that was not really, not really what happened. Anyway, the, the project kicked off uh, under Gasset's and Sackleman's leadership, and they needed a name for their Skunkworks project. And it sounded like it really was a, a Skunkworks project. I mean, that name has uh, pretty negative connotations, I think. Uh, but it sounds like this was not just some division within Apple, which was already already growing in its Cupertino campus, but uh, they basically rented warehouse space across town in Cupertino, and just these guys went over there and were working on these new technologies. They needed a name for the group, and they were inspired by the original Apple logo, not the rainbow-striped logo that we're all familiar with, but you've possibly seen it before. Apple's original logo was, well, I mean, it wasn't much of a logo. It was a piece of art representing the company. It was like... Um, Looked like a woodcut, like a stamp. Right, or like an eng engraving. Um, and it had this like big flowy ribbon that said Apple Computer Incorporated, and then it had a picture of Isaac Newton sitting under a tree with, you know, as the story goes, uh, he was sitting under a tree, apple fell on his head, and he went, ah, gravity. <laughs> and because of that relationship, I mean, it, I guess it makes sense, especially also given the motivation of this project to be the next big thing after the Macintosh. Obviously, the Macintosh is also riffing on the Apple name, so they wanted something that was also had that connection to the core brand and that, you know, the connotations that come with Apple. So they decided to call the project Newton. Core brand as it relates to Apple is also oh, a very I, good. <laughs> I didn't even mean to. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, the, the group, the Skunkworks group and the project is uh, going under the name of Newton. And Ed, you mentioned uh, like feature creep, <laughs> like the, the scope got out of hand. Um, actually, Jean-Louis Gasset and Steve Sackerman didn't actually stay at Apple long enough to see the the fruits of the Newton project. Fruits? Ah. God, I did. <laughs> I don't think we need to get into all the detail of the like corporate politics and kind of infighting that happened during this turbulent time at Apple. But uh, Jean-Louis Gasset was not maybe quite forced out, but I think the, the best course of action was for him to leave. And he took Sackerman with him and they started the B Company, 
creators of BOS and the B-Box, which, which almost got bought out by Apple in the Copeland crisis. And uh, that didn't happen. They bought Next instead. And the rest is history, as they say. Uh, so the team continued working in their absence, and they were working towards what they thought would be the first eventual Newton product. But this wasn't the little PDA palm-sized message pad that we all know. The first Newton product was slated to be a like an eight and a half by eleven sized piece of paper, a tablet basically. But like again, like you said, uh, the scope of this kind of ballooned. It had a hard drive. It had a it had a big screen. It had infrared for the networking, and, uh, and I think their their targeted retail price was going to be over six thousand dollars. Their initial goal was fifteen hundred, I think. Because they wanted it to be towards the low end of the Mac product range. And instead, they just kept adding all of this stuff that made a great computing device, but not a product that you could actually sell on decent margins and and make any kind of business case for. So it got totally out of control to the point that they had this device that was, it was big, it was very powerful, but it was extremely expensive. And I mean, even, you know, even compared to this is the era of like the Mac 2FX, which sold for $10,000, but that was the absolute top of the line. That was, that was the supercar of the Mac line. And only a handful of people were buying those. That's, you know, it's like the Mac pro today. Well, or the Mac pro when it was most recently updated, Right, but you know you can really spec one out for for top of the line prices, but that's something that you would expect would be the top of the line of an established successful brand, not the entry 1.0 release of a completely new brand, completely new paradigm, completely new system software. Now you may wonder how did it even get to this point, and I think uh, this this product, which was codenamed Figaro, uh, so that's a fun little thing to help you in your Googling. <laughs> um, how could this even get there? Well, John Scully also had you know, the, the vision for like, what's Apple's big direction post Macintosh. And uh, he called his like grand vision for this, the knowledge navigator, which is very comparable to a lot of the concepts we discussed in our episode about Douglas Adams, where we also watched that Hyperland documentary, where there are kind of like hypertext and hypercard esque uh, computer paradigms and software, uh, almost to like Siri and virtual assistants that can help you uh, like organize and, and locate new information. And a lot of Scully's ideas of how this future of computing would manifest were in a kind of magazine-sized touchscreen uh, device. So you can see how like as the the Newton team's kind of Frankensteining components onto something that's still roughly magazine-shaped. Uh, you know, he might have like the tunnel vision to say like, okay, sure. Keep going. Yeah. The knowledge navigator was a really ambitious concept, but one that I think because of Scully's backing had some real weight behind it, even though it was perhaps technologically infeasible for then and maybe even for now. (laughs) Um, but there were a handful of concept videos that Apple produced and we'll put links to a couple of those that are, out on YouTube. We'll put those in the show notes. And it, you know, <laughs> they're cheesy and they're 80s videos, but 
they show this computing platform that really has like a smart, intelligent assistant in it. You know, we, we think about those kinds of things today in terms of Siri and the Google assistant and the Amazon platform for that. And, you know, these voice assistants that we have today, and this was like a video assistant, it had, you know, like in Hyperland, like a video avatar and actually being able to smartly synthesize information for you. So this is very much a grand science fiction vision of computing that, you know, some of the commands that are understood by the knowledge navigator in these concept videos are things that like, man, I wish Siri were that smart today. Um, and wouldn't, wouldn't just totally screw up basic requests. So this is kind of the, the way that they're being pushed. So, um, because this was supposed to be not just a companion to the Mac, but bigger and better and the next success for Apple, I think that, yeah, they, they, they went very big with their initial, initial thoughts. But once they got to that point where they said, well, here's, here's Figaro. These are the features that it has. It works great. Um, but it's going to cost $6,000. Then, then the business aspect came in and, the team was asked to produce a a range of products, including scaling down to can you really hit that like twelve fifteen hundred dollar price point because otherwise we're not going to make it and at that point, they split their efforts based on the technology that they already had into three tracks, so there was the original Figaro, and then they had two uh two different products that internally they were calling senior and junior so senior was uh, more closely based on the, the Figaro spec down, but the same basic case design that like A4 letter size piece of paper, a tablet computer, in other words. And Junior was the handheld device. And it sounds like there was a lot of politicking within the team. There were some people who thought that Senior was really the superior product and some people who thought that Junior was the superior product. And to me, just I feel like the parallels are kind of uncanny here for how the Newton actually came to be compared with the iPhone. Yeah. Because as we know, within Apple, as they were developing what came to be iOS devices, the iPad was actually the initial concept. The full-size tablet computer was going to be the product that was going that Apple wanted to release first, but very smartly because they saw the market pressures of heading towards smartphones. They actually reversed priority and went for the miniature version, the iPhone first and let the iPad come out a few years later. And of course that was undoubtedly the smartest decision that Steve jobs ever made. (laughs) It's, it's, you know, you don't want to attribute too much to Steve jobs, but that is the smartest decision that he ever made in terms of, you know, business-wise for Apple, that because if they had gone with the iPad first, we would be in a very different world. At least Apple would be in a very different world. So the same kind of thing was going on here, but and the same kind of result happened was that the junior team won out, and I think it was because they were able to get a lot of the technological benefits of the overall Newton platform that they had built. And because it was smaller and used lower power and lower performance parts, it was cheaper. And in fact, it was much cheaper. It actually undercut their original price target 
of being you know around fifteen hundred dollars or cheaper than cheaper than an average Mac, and so that would actually come in as a separate class of device, and that's that made the better business case and eventually won the day. On the other hand, though, there were still some bumps in the road in terms of getting the technology finalized before it was released. Yeah, uh, we Ed, you mentioned at the top of this show how. Uh, the six-month gap between the iPhone's announcement and its eventual release to consumers is notably long. It must have been hard to go through. But uh, Apple was confident that the Newton was going to be a success, was going to be uh, a future, if not the future, direction of computing. And so they began to start talking about it at trade shows. Uh, but, you know, like it the Newton wasn't ready at the time that they were talking about it to the tune of, I think like over a year. And so like a lot of things had to happen between uh, like teasing and talking about the Newton to when people could actually buy it. And one of those many things, including like bug fixes and stuff that I thought was kind of cool is that originally the processors inside were from AT&T, a kind of like Bell Labs type of thing. And they were (laughs) codenamed Hobbit processors I want to say because they were small and, you know, like for mobile devices. But one of the changes that Apple made leading up to the eventual release of the Newton was to switch to ARM to the point where I think one of the articles even mentioned that Apple bought a a significant share of a company making ARM processors. And you talk again about the parallels to the development of the iPhone specifically today. It's crazy. It's it's so crazy. We had three generations of uh, Apple using someone else's ARM processors, and then they buy PA, what is it? PA semiconductor and bring a whole ARM chip design team in-house and start cranking out these A-class chips that are, you know, far above the competition. And one of the reasons the iPhone can stay a, a category leader and so that again, that was that was one of the things that helped the Newton eventually become this viable product for the market. Yeah, one of the reasons that they had to get rid of the Hobbit processors is that in some of the prototypes leading up to that decision to make the change, apparently they were running three different Hobbit processors within a single device. Like, you know, if you think in terms of 90s computing parlance, you would have the CPU of your device. And that generally referred to the processor. Like, you know, you had a central processing unit that had the most power in terms of computation. And for whatever reason, the way that they were handling different tasks within the OS um, and, you know, drawing to the screen and digitizing handwriting and all of these features that were new with the Newton they couldn't actually get it all to work basically on one processor. And it's not like today where you just like, oh, well, we'll just put a four core processor in it and, you know, parallelize everything. It'll be fine. They actually had three discrete processors in there. And I think that they were, you know, because they were tailored to different functions, they were not even the same. And that was when, you know, people looked at, you know, someone at Apple looked at, you know, They've always been big about their margins. Somebody looked at the part list for this thing and went, you have three what in here? (laughs) Right? I mean, you just can't do that. And so they said, okay, we're going to have to get this all into a single processing unit, but it's not going to work in this architecture. And thus the jump to ARM. 
After that jump, though, then they were able to bring it actually to trade shows, not just talk anymore. And the first demo of the Newton in person was at CES Chicago, an event that we talked about way, way back when I first learned about it, when we did our Triumph of the Nerds episodes, where there were some scenes there that were taken from CES Chicago. And like Macworld was for a while, CES had multiple shows around the country uh, in the early 90s. There was one in Chicago, and I think there was a West Coast one. I'm not sure if it was in Vegas then yet or not. As we're recording this now, CES just wrapped up in Vegas. Yeah. So the Newton was first demoed in Chicago at CES. As, you know, I, I think that Apple had a, still had a fairly big presence at CES then, and then, you know, their trade show presence evolved over time, going focusing more on Macworld and then eventually rolling out, getting out of that business entirely and going to their own distinct media events. But it sounds like it was a fairly successful demo. Of course, it was, uh, you know, there was a little bit of magic to make it work correctly. All of the devices that were being demonstrated were tethered to Macs. And I'm not sure exactly what kind of support the Macs were offering, uh, but there was definitely some reliance on either computing or power outside of the device just to make things run smoothly. And this calls to mind a story that I actually saw today as people are talking about the iPhone initial release and demo and the fact that they were having trouble with the cell phone connectivity in the demo units. And so they just made a quick patch to the operating system on the demo units that just, it always showed five bars, even if there wasn't five bars. <laughs> <laughs> so this was very much that same kind of demo, uh, the same kind of demo that we got for the original iPhone, maybe not quite as slick, but definitely showcasing a product, something that was completely new in you know, a new category. And that was fairly convincing. And I think at a separate trade show, there's a quick anecdote about how I think it was a, a beaming demonstration didn't work on stage, but they, they were confident that it would work. So after the, like the keynote presentation was over, some Apple employees with functioning Newton units ran into the crowd with their demo units and, and were able to get it to work like on the show floor. Like in front of reporters so that they wouldn't write bad, you know, bad reviews of it. Yeah. The, the infrared technology, the beaming technology, which did become sort of a core piece of the Newton um, and had its complement on many desktop Macs for compatibility with those Newtons and other devices. In retrospect, we know it was a dumb technology, but it sounded like it was really in its infancy and really ineffective at this time. It, it, it was not a technology that was destined to last, and it was not even fully baked then. When there were the competing factions going back and forth with the senior and junior, uh, this, I think it was the senior team thought that they had the superior wireless networking for whatever reason in terms of the features that it offered. But there was something about the frequency of infrared beam that it used that if you were just in an office with regular fluorescent lights, they caused enough interference from like the flicker because, you know, those lights flicker at a sometimes perceptible, sometimes imperceptible rate. And that was basically enough to just throw off the IR sensors and you couldn't use them. So that was CES Chicago 1992 
the first model of the Newton message pad would eventually go for sale to the public in August of 1993. Yeah, so that's about eight or nine months later. Uh, so let's talk about some hallmarks of the Newton platform. Yeah, it sounds like it's really rough around the edges, but it's got some really fantastic features. So before we discuss like the individual products themselves, like the, what, what was the platform eventually known for? I think primarily it was a pen or stylus-based input device. It was uh, arguably like the first mainstream PDA. There are some articles that were giving Apple credit for coming up with the term personal digital assistant. And so you could hold it in one hand and it had a, a stylus that would slide into the side or you know in a, in a little holding place like a Galaxy Note <laughs> today. And you could enter data, you could manipulate the device solely through this pen. Uh, a thing that the Newton got a lot of recognition for, though not necessarily positive recognition, was its ability to understand handwriting and convert it into text. Uh, again, this was a, a landmark feature, but at, certainly at first, it did not always work very well. And as I understand, in 1.0, that was the only method of getting text into the device, correct? Certainly no hardware keyboard and no first-party uh, software keyboard. Right. So this was designed to be, th this was a device that was designed to be written on mm -hmm. like a pad of paper, hence the name message pad. And it had the stylus, it had the pressure sensitive screen and the way that you were supposed to enter text on it was to write in your ordinary handwriting. And then the device would translate that, you know, basically OCR into text on screen that you could then do the ordinary word processing manipulations on. And that's a, that's a pretty high bar to clear. And uh, it didn't necessarily uh, live up to its billing. Uh, there were definitely cases in, in the media and then popular culture. We'll get to those a little bit later in the show where the failures of the Newton's handwriting recognition were, were lampooned in various ways. But one of the other technologies that it had based on the pen-based input was also the ability not only to recognize characters of writing, but also to recognize shapes and then turn those into vector art. And I thought this was, I, I didn't actually know about this feature. I knew about the handwriting recognition and, uh, you know, it's infamous. <laughs> but the fact that you can draw and then have something turned into a piece of vector art, like, wait a minute. That's like a brand new feature of iOS. Literally in iOS 10, they added that ability to the markup framework in, in iOS. And it's really great. You know, you can draw an arrow and then it gives you the little option. Do you, do you want to keep your squiggly arrow or do you want to turn it into a beautiful vector arrow? And you can just tap between the two and it works really well. And it's kind of remarkable that that was even attempted with the original message pad in 1993. Another... A uh, hallmark feature of the Newton, certainly in its ability to still be a kind of hobbyist platform today, is that the devices uh, kind of relied heavily on uh, cards. And whether these were storage cards purely for storing your data or cards to extend the device's capabilities, the Newton was pretty customizable through uh, first and third party hardware add-ons. So these are PCM CIA cards, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, there's a cool image of a like late model Newton, the 2000 series that actually had two slots 
and uh, we'll put this image in the show notes. There's one that has this Newton has one of Apple's first party storage cards and also I think an ethernet or maybe a modem, but some kind of wired internet, uh, two cards at the same time. Uh, and it's like, as we also, uh, probably hear many different podcasts talking about the, oh, woe is the Mac pro and the MacBook pro that have USB C or haven't been updated and are kind of closed off systems. The Newton was fairly extensible and, and, you know, used some open standards. And I think that that was another thing that led to it. It's, it's, you know, limited success then, but the ability for it to continue to have legs as a hobbyist platform today. I mean, I guess you could get really crazy and do like homebrew, homebrew PCM CIA cards, but, um, but just the fact that it was an extensible platform made a lot of sense for the time. This is one place where it definitely diverges from the iPhone that was the closed platform, no additional storage, no additional capabilities, no ports. Um, so this was something that, like you said, made it a more attractive device at the time and has enabled this lingering cult following of the Newton, uh, even for people who today are probably mostly carrying an iPhone in their pocket, but still have a beloved Newton device that they're uh, nursing along. So let's talk about some of the actual models themselves. So the original message pad was launched in August of 93, as we said, and debuted for $900. So decent price point for the device. Uh, at launch, it was just called the message pad. But then later on, it gained a model number as new models entered the Newton lineup and became the MessagePad 100. In terms of its hardware features, like we said, it had that ARM processor running at 20 megahertz, which decent for the time. It had a 4 megabyte ROM and 640K of RAM. And of course, one of the most important features was its screen and Kind of like the original Macintosh, it prided itself on having a high-quality black-and-white, high-pixel-density screen. And so for a handheld device, that was 336 by 240 pixels, which was definitely um, a high-density screen for the time. And it had that one PCMCIA expansion slot. Some of the other hardware features of the device include... Um, what we would think of as software features now. This is something I didn't really understand at the time, but I get now, especially being able to look at all the Newtons lined up next to each other. But the like 100 series of Newton had uh, shortcuts for apps and functions permanently on the bottom edge of the display if you're holding it in a portrait. And from left to right, these were names, uh, kind of like your contacts, dates, your calendars, extras, which I think was kind of like a catch-all app launcher, and then a little bit of navigation, and then undo, find, and assist, like a, like a help function. And uh, not only were these like little icons always there, but their labels were always there, which means that the if you wanted to sell a Newton in Germany, um, they would have to put like another overlay on the screen that had it. So you couldn't localize in the software. It was the hardware itself that had to be localized, which is something I always forget. But like you look at keyboard layouts of a Mac user, even in Great Britain, 
and they have uh, slightly different hardware layouts on their keyboards. And this was another example of that. So you didn't get quite all the way towards the one of one of the iPhones selling features of being all touchscreen is that the interface can completely adjust for the context. No, at the original series of Newtons had some elements of the screen that were permanent. Yeah, I'm looking at the picture on Wikipedia and I'm not sure which language it is, but it's a Germanic language of some sort. Uh, it is not English, which is also a Germanic language. <laughs> um, but the word extras and assist are the only ones that are the same. The others are are localized, but like you said, that's a feature of the hardware. Also in the middle of these buttons are some arrows, which are for scrolling. They're essentially a, a hard-coded uh, hard scroll bar in, in the center of the device. This is exactly what Apple has just gotten rid of with the uh, the new touch bar on the MacBook Pros, right? These are like your function keys. These are these are your brightness up, brightness down, uh, expose, those kind of system level features. And then in terms of their placement on the device, it's very much like the dock that persists in software on the iPhone and Springboard, where you want to have the most commonly accessed features most commonly accessed applications always being available. It's kind of like a combination of that because you have something like contacts, um, which, you know, at, at that time would be something that would be like a top tier application. You know, when the iPhone shipped, it had iPod and Safari and mail and messages, right? Because, you know, those, those were the, the top features, but something like contacts was a top feature for the Newton. And then some of the other things that are down here, like undo, are more like what we see today in the QuickType bar in iOS. So if you go into landscape view on the phone, or if you're using the QuickType bar on iOS, you have some of those features like undo, uh, copy, paste can be available with a single tap in the same kind of like under the content area. Obviously, it's in software, so the display is much more flexible as opposed to this. But this seems like actually a very good combination of features. And in true Apple form, it is as minimal as it can be. So it has these things that are on the display, and those are accessed by the stylus. But what it doesn't have is, like you said, a hardware keyboard. That was not even really not even really in the running at this time. But it doesn't have buttons on the face of the device. These are not buttons that you push. Whereas other PDAs from competitors did have both these kind of uh, dedicated screen areas and physical buttons for certain actions. So that was the original message pad, August of 1993. Uh, in March of 1994, the, the next revision of the message pad came out, and this was given the model number 110. And like Ed said, the original was classified as 100. But um, similar to the iMac G3, I think the MessagePad 110 is kind of the MessagePad Apple wanted to originally get out there. Uh, just like how the iMac G3 shipped with like a tray loading CD and the kind of the metal shielding around the CRT, but they eventually kind of finessed that out. Also your iPhone 3G to the original iPhone. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, because it came out pretty quickly after the original message pad, but it has an all new form factor. That's uh, a narrower 
both in terms of like the physical proportions and the display lost a couple of pixels. The display is now 320 by 240 instead of 336 by 240. And there are a couple of uh, spec upgrades, like the RAM gets bumped to a full meg. And instead of using triple A's, it now requires four double A batteries. One thing that it didn't gain in the new form factor was any, any uh, thinner, lighter kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, that's the, the way that Apple cases go these days. But the both the original message pad and the 110 weighed in at one pound or thereabouts, um, which is is chunky for a handheld device um, and is more in line with what we would expect for like a full size iPad today. The 100 series of message pad got uh, two more years of iteration in January of 95. The 120 was released, which is basically like the ability to have a higher spec 110. And then in March of 96, the 130 was released, which again had higher specs uh, available for purchase, but also introduced the ability to have a backlight. And uh, this was cool because the the Newton message pads did have a power button and the backlight could be triggered through, I think it was holding down the power button instead of just like a, an actual press. But the backlight was also uh, able to be toggled through software. And I think that was that's a cool thing. Um, it kind of reminds me of like the pre-color uh, display iPods that had backlights that you, I think you had to hold down what, menu or something? There's elements of the, the iPod DNA in that. So the next major step for the Newton line was what you might expect would be the leap to 200. But no, it's such a huge leap that it goes all the way to 2000. Um so this is in March of 1997. Uh, the MessagePad 2000 was released. Another new form factor, actually, again, not thinner and lighter, bigger and heavier, but a bigger, but a bigger screen and moving to grayscale instead of black and white. A significantly more processing power. This has a 162 megahertz as opposed to 20 megahertz ARM processor, and. Like uh, we were just talking about with the MacBooks of today and MacBook Pros of today, the permanent apps on the that were painted on the display also went away and into software. That was the MessagePad 2000. Later on in the same year, there was the 2100 uh, that basically had higher specs, like a little more RAM. But also, at the same time as the MessagePad 2000 was released in March of 1997, Apple released a second class of device for the Newton platform. And this was the E-Mate. The E-Mate is one of the weirdest and most adorable products that Apple has ever released. It, it has like the highest density of translucent colored plastics, I think, on, on a, any Apple product. Yeah, pretty much every surface is translucent. And you look at this thing and... Um, you couldn't know it at the time because the two products didn't exist, but you can see it as a direct midpoint between the message pad line and what came to be the iBook, the original clamshell orange and blue iBooks. And uh, there are many aspects of that same design. It's a curved clamshell. It looks like a miniature laptop. It has a full keyboard. And it also has a place for the stylus and the touch-sensitive screen that you would expect in Newton OS. And yeah, it's just it's just kind of a 
weird in-between device that didn't know what it wanted to be. It was marketed as kind of a low-cost laptop alternative, especially for the education market, hence the E in eMate that later got repurposed in the eMac, which was kind of the um, the, the low-end, low-cost iMac alternative with CRT for the education space a few years later. And yeah, the, the eMate is just... I, I, I don't even know what to say. It's it's a fun and weird, but ultimately unsuccessful product. What you said about being like a miniature laptop, like a netbook, I think is the perfect description. Because one thing I didn't realize until doing research for this episode is that the eMate as a clamshell computer had the exact same display as the handheld message pads of its generation. It was just there. It was the eMate's display was landscape and the message pads were portrait. So if you can imagine opening up, you know, like basically the equivalent of like an 11 inch MacBook Air, but the bezel is so large, and so thick that you've essentially got a, a centered itty bitty display that's like the size of a an, an, a plus class iPhone. Uh, and all the while, this is like not as thin as a MacBook Air. This is like curvy and thick and chunky. Uh, yeah. It's an interesting product. It's 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 adorable in its very specific way. Yeah. So what the eMate was really counting on was being that low cost device because it retailed for seven ninety nine US. Whereas, yeah, you could get you know the screen looked comical compared to what was available in the PowerBook line at the time, but you were looking at fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred, twenty five hundred dollar computers in the PowerBook line. So this was going to be a third to half of the price. And so that was that was the thrust of it. But in you know it it just didn't quite meet that need. If you needed something, you know, I think the only place I ever saw an eMate, and in fact the only place I've ever used Newton OS in any way, was there was one in our computer lab briefly. I think it was like on loan from Apple to see if they wanted to, you know, make make a large purchase of them. And, um, you know, it didn't stand up to the desktop machines that were there. And it didn't make sense to give a, every student one of these. What, were, what was it going to give them that um, we didn't have either by going to a computer lab or in a portable class device like the AlphaSmarts? that we had, which were these, you know, miniature word processors, you weren't going to get much more out of an eMate than miniaturized word processing. And I don't know exactly what the Alpha Smarts are retailing for at that time, but my guess was that they were more along the lines of like two or $300. So it's like, well, we could buy three Alpha Smarts or one eMate or half a PowerBook. Like the, the cost calculus just didn't add up. Yeah. I, I think I had the exact experiences you probably in the same computer lab uh my only experience with newton os was on one eMate very briefly and i think you make a good point uh maybe specific to our particular school district but if it's the same computer lab at the time it was a lab full of lcs or lc2s we were lc2s yeah and like 12 inch crts uh for for like full-fledged computing not just word processing but we would go in there and use hypercard we'd go in there and play like some of the games we discussed in our children's uh, software episode. And there's no way the Newton or the eMate could have, 
lived up to that. And then you're right on the low end, the alpha smarts would have taken care of any of the word processing needs we had had for a fraction of the price. Yeah, that was the thing that you were willing to loan out to a classroom, loan out to a student to actually take home with them, um, whereas a full a full laptop was not available and the eMate wasn't wasn't serving the need either. So we're we're getting to kind of down towards the the end of the Newton platform arc, but we should mention here with the 2000 class devices, we also got the Newton OS 2.0, which really brought along some some new features including a completely rewritten handwriting recognition system that had significantly better results, although the damage had been done in terms of the the reputation. The name of this uh, handwriting recognition system was called Rosetta, and it's another one of those names that Apple has loved to reuse, as uh, Rosetta then later became the uh, seamless emulation layer between PowerPC and Intel in the Mac OS X era. The 2.0 release of Newton OS uh, also allowed the message pads to rotate their screen, you know, landscape or portrait. And I want to say this is because the eMate was released at the same time, which had a like a hard locked landscape screen. But one thing to point out is that it's not just a matter of rotating your Newton message pad. No accelerometer in there. It's like going in and activating that weird option and display, like you have to hold option hold the option key to get the display rotation uh, settings in, in Mac OS where you can even like flip your screen 180 degrees upside down and then have a very fun time of trying to turn the setting back off. Yeah. And um, there were a couple first party accessories that Apple uh, released at this time, including um, a like standalone wired hardware keyboard that was not full size. It's not like the size of the magic keyboard. Um, it was probably in line with the size of the keyboard that was inlaid into the eMate. We'll put a link to that, a picture of that in the show notes. It looks, it looks a little bit ridiculous. Um, but to me, the, the thing that it, it really looks like to me is like, if you have a magic keyboard and an iPhone, well, like, yeah, you can connect it to the iPhone, but then what? Like, right. It's not a coherent device. And maybe that was part of the impetus for the eMate was to think, well, oh, well, maybe we do want a coherent device. Maybe this platform would benefit from faster text input, but it didn't work out. Apple also sold uh, cards to go into the PC MCIA. The picky Mickey. <laughs> the PC MCIA slots. Uh, and we mentioned these before, um, but I, one thing worth mentioning is uh, one of these stories about like Apple's talked about the Newton, but the Newton is available for release yet. I think it was like getting ready to ship out the initial orders of the original message pad. Uh, someone revealed a, a bug, I think, in the getting started PCMCIA card that had to be like patched by hand and, you know, like sh- changed out all the, the inventory with new cards and, oh, sounds like a stressful launch. Yeah, they also had problems with the um cuz the message pads had like little rubberized feet on them that apparently fell off and they they just got like a bunch of Apple employees with like with super glue in a room just like after they had been shipped from from the actual, you know, the the manufacturing plant in Asia to California. They're just sitting there like gluing on little rubber feet. <laughs> That's what I imagine most like Kickstarter companies do before they fulfill to their backers. 
They're just all hunched over fixing like the last minute things. That's not what you imagine Apple doing, though. I mean, you imagine them caring that much, but you don't imagine them actually having to put in that work. And of course, at the scale, I think they said that the initial shipment was like 800 units. So it was feasible, um, you know, because they were dealing at a much smaller scale than than they are today. So that's kind of through the the Apple side of the Newton platform. But we have said that that it is a platform. So before we leave the 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 Newton ecosystem entirely, it's worth mentioning that there were uh, so-called clones. There were hardware devices not made by Apple that ran the Newton OS. Well, of course, in the Newton OS 2.0 era, we're in like 95, 96, 97. And so we're right in the middle of also the macOS cloning era. So this is not out of character for Apple of the time. There's there's not a lot of information about some of the more prominent clones out there, but we felt it was worth pointing out some of their ridiculous names. There's one that's called the Motorola Marco. Yeah. <laughs> and a company called Digital Ocean made a couple different Newton-based devices. One was called the Seahorse, okay? And one was called the Tarpon, which if you look at it printed on a page, um People thought that the iPad name was uh, was ridiculous and, and conjured up images of feminine hygiene products, and this one is far worse. Uh, there was also one manufactured by Siemens called the Note Phone. Uh, I don't know if it actually had cellular capability, but there is an image of a Siemens Note Phone laid out next to two message pads, and it almost looks identical. Uh, so I wonder if Apple was also sending out like hardware guidelines or the, the Newton platform to its licensees. My guess is that there weren't that many suppliers of like the um you know just the display panels that were involved. Because they had to be customized in this this is I, I should mention this is like a one hundred class Newton, so it does have the like the shortcuts laminated to the bottom of the display. Yeah. So the the outside case plastic is a li- it's like tapered a little bit differently. Um but the the rest is extremely similar. So I can't imagine that any of these were business successes either, um, especially if Apple itself was dealing in fairly small volumes. Uh, the the clone makers were were definitely faring worse. One company though that was faring at least as well, and then eventually much better uh, in this era was the competition, though. And like I said, I didn't have really a lot of primary experience with the Newton because I, uh, despite being an Apple and Mac fan, I was a fan of the Palm handheld devices in not really the the mid to late 90s, but in the early 2000s. And so uh, everyone knows uh, the name Palm Pilot, uh, the unfortunate name that skunked the rest of all of the names of the rest of the entire uh, product line and everything that the company ever made. Only, I think, four devices actually had Palm Pilot in their name. So, it, you know, it's like um, it's like Mini Cooper, um, right? Where Pilot was actually the name of the individual device. Uh, like Message Pad was the name of the individual device in the Newton family. Uh, but every single Palm device from then on got called Palm Pilots. Um, so the original Palm Pilot 1000 came out in 1996. So after the first Newtons, uh, but before or right around the same time uh, of the release of the 2000. 
a little bit before. So there is some real competition here. Uh, and then the Palm line iterated very quickly, the same as the, the message pad line did. The Palm 3 came out in 1998, and the Palm 5 and 5X came out in 99. And I had a 5X. I actually had two 5Xs because one of them got stepped on. <laughs> oh. um, it was during the, uh, during the uh, Northeast blackout of 2002, wasn't it? Um, where basically the entire northern, Northeast portion of the U.S. had a massive power grid failure. Um, and it was during the summer, so it was really hot. And we all had to sleep downstairs on the couches. And the next morning, my dad stepped on my message pad, or uh, not message pad, stepped on my, uh, my Palm 5. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was an accident. It got replaced. Um, but I really loved the, the Palm devices. And one of the things that they had that I think made them very attractive, um, you know, I was using it as a student. I was using it as my daily organizer in high school, which was, I think, exceptional um you know that was around the time where like the high-tech devices that high school students had were graphing calculators and there was rampant graphing calculator theft and like the palm 5 was actually a nicer piece of electronic equipment but i kind of never feared for it because nobody really understood what it did but it was my it was my go-to portable electronic device at that time and one of the things about it is that um, one of the things that propelled it ahead of the Newton family fairly quickly was the miniaturization. So the features were fairly similar. The displays were fairly similar, usually um, you know, black and white or a limited grayscale palette had those on-screen buttons and also physical buttons for different features um, like the calendar um, or contacts book or things like that. And some of those features I never used. So there were just buttons I never pushed. Um, but they got to be very small and that was, you know, I kept the, like I keep my phone in my front left pocket. Now I kept my Palm five X in my front left pocket in high school, because, uh, if you actually look at it, the, the weight of the 5X is about equivalent to the weight of an iPhone 6. And you would usually put like a, a, a cover over the front. They had uh, a hinge that would go over the front. And so the same as you might put like an Apple leather case on a 6. That's about the size and weight that the Palm devices were dealing with. Whereas the Newton, we didn't put it in the stocking stuffer episode because <laughs> like you would really have to wedge it in there. Because they were much bigger devices. The 2000 series devices weighed 1.4 pounds. They were, they were designing the devices to be in that sort of original tablet class that they had imagined rather than a pocket mobile device. Forgive me for potentially a terrible comparison, but I think especially the 2000 class series could be compared to size wise like a VHS tape, like chunky and, and bigger than you'd think. So it the the 2100 I have the specs up for now was 8.3 inches tall, 4.7 inches wide and 1.1 inches deep. Right? So 1.1 inches deep, I mean that's you know like you said, yeah, VHS tape, like it's got some thickness to it. It was a much more substantial device and not a truly mobile device. And I think that that was evident 
uh, around 1998 with, you know, looking at the Palm three and, uh, and the advances that Palm was making when Steve jobs came back to Apple and said, we need to refocus and the Newton does not fall in the current focus. You know, there's the, the famous stuff with the grid of four, uh, with desktop and laptop professional and consumer. Well, it's outside the grid because it didn't really reach true handheld. So it wasn't worth expanding the grid out to. Um, and it was clearly neither class of uh, full-fledged computing device like the Macs of the time and the Macs of today. So that was part of the reason for it being called. Of course, it also had uh, lingering things like like a clone program and other stuff that uh, was was unpopular uh, with Steve Jobs at the time of his return. And so the Newton line was eventually canceled, whereas the Palm line continued on um, for several years beyond that. Um, they also had their own dalliances with uh, licensing and clones. There were, of course, uh, the Handspring Visor was the first uh, really well-selling Palm OS running device that was not made by Palm. And then they wound up kind of eating Palm's lunch in terms of the market share for that platform. And uh, not nearly as, not, not quite like, uh, like, uh, was it Motorola or no power computing, not quite like power computing with the clones where Apple said like, just to shut you down, we have to buy you. Um, eventually Palm and Handspring merged and used some of their different uh, branding and IP kind of interchangeably. They had devices like the, the tungsten line. I had a Palm TX in college um, that replaced my 5X. It was a full color device. It had uh, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and a really, really garbage web browser called Blazor um, that tried to load full desktop versions of sites and and failed more often than not, but it was the best thing that we had at the time <laughs> um, because obviously that I mean I was using that in let's see I was using that in two thousand five or two thousand six so still significantly pre iPhone so um, Palm took that mantle from like nineteen ninety eight all the way up until the release of the iPhone is having the best devices. A lot of people today have been posting pictures of here was my phone before the iPhone. There were definitely some Palm Treos in there, which were their entry into the smartphone category as it existed pre-iPhone. And actually, you know, people thought that Palm was an established handheld computing platform and just grafting on phone capability to that was a compelling product for the time. Uh, but then... Of course, the iPhone took things a, to an entirely different level. Um, Palm, of course, has, uh, is no longer, um, you know, largely due to uh, the existence of the iPhone and iOS. Palm developed WebOS and put out uh, really some nice smartphones, including things like the Palm Pre um, that ran WebOS, and many of the WebOS features uh, kind of inspired some things that linger in iOS today, card-based app switching and all of that. Uh, but now, unfortunately, as we've seen at uh, 2017 CES, WebOS is not totally dead, uh, but for now, it is only powering smart fridges, a device that you definitely do not need. <laughs> 
So with that in mind, maybe it's it's time to start winding down this episode and discuss the legacy of the Newton and, you know, the Newton at large, the hardware, the software, and some of its quirks. And we've been alluding to its uh, ill-fated first attempt at handwriting recognition, which spawned at least two major uh, uh, pieces of pop culture commentary. And the first one, I think, is by far the, the more popular one. It's an episode of The Simpsons when uh, Nelson uh, takes a note onto his uh, Newton to beat up Martin and the Newton uh, digitizes his handwriting into eat up Martha. <laughs> He's not amused with that fact. And then there was the comic strip Doonesbury, uh, a classic four panel comic strip where uh, in one of the strips, one of the characters is writing on his Newton and for the first three panels uh, he kind of has a thought bubble about what he's writing. And then the Newton spits out word for word what he has written. But in the fourth panel, uh, he's kind of got a, like a smile, like he's finally warming up to the Newton and he writes catching on question mark. And the Newton uh, replies back to him, egg freckles. <laughs> yeah. There are actually several of these um, egg freckles is the catchphrase that has, has caught on. I, I, we'll, we'll post a link to, to some of these. And uh, yeah, Egg Freckles is among them. Um, there's another one where he writes, Hello, JJ, how are you? And it comes out as, Hell Jars, Howard Yo-Yo. <laughs> These are like the original autocorrect jokes. Yes, yeah. The Egg Freckles one, like you said, uh, I think was the most beloved out of the, the Doonesbury. Uh, so much so that Apple actually turned the phrase Egg Freckles into an Easter egg. Um, in later releases of the Newton OS. And uh, the Easter egg itself made it all the way to the New York Times. So we'll put a link to the New York Times article about the egg freckles Easter egg in Newton into our show notes. What a sentence that was. <laughs> you you may f actually be following egg freckles on Twitter at the moment. A Newton fan, Thomas Brand, uh, has taken it as his his online identity. He has a great little logo that's got like, it's like a little Yoshi egg. Um, and his site, eggfreckles.net is all uh, in the style. It's a blog in the style of the Newton. Um, like it shows like with the backlight and um, it's all black and white and all of the interface is very faithfully replicated. Like his most recent post is actually about the touch bar. Um, and he's got, um, he's got images and screenshots, but they're all grayscaleified and, and turned green, just like you might expect to see on the screen of a classic Newton device. And we've mentioned how the Newton platform continues to be kind of a hobbyist platform for enthusiasts. And uh, one of the ways that it is able to continue to exist today is that there are Newton OS emulators that you can use to write or test or debug uh, third-party software, even interface with a Newton. Though at this point, if you wanted to do it with a modern Mac, you need a series of dongles. Uh, and I think the, the leader in Newton emulation is called Einstein, which is a nice, clever name. Aha. And one of the main contributors to the Einstein project is none other than Stephen Frank of Panic. So I've hit my quota for mentioning Panic on the show. <laughs> <laughs> There's some smart guys. This is, you know, any of these kind of emulation or re-implementation projects always, always impress me because it is 
way, way beyond my programming abilities to to get to this level. I can I can write a for loop. That's helpful. But uh, actually getting in there and replicating a previous device is really, really useful work for those of us who uh, you know don't have access to the devices and still want to get a sense of what that experience was like. Yeah, as you mentioned, the the like the the low level computing knowledge and expertise that goes into writing emulation. There were a couple of things in our show notes about kind of the way the Newton OS operated. Uh, for example, it I think it could interpret C++, uh, compiled C++, but uh, third-party developers who wanted to write software for the Newton would write it in its own language, Newton Script. And there's a whole Wikipedia article on Newton Script that uh, is mostly over my head. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes if you're interested in learning more about that. Uh, more interesting for its name than anything else, at least to me, is what the Newton file system was called. So unlike Apple's current file systems, HFS Plus, or its future file system, the Apple file system, the Newton stored its data in soup. <laughs> so the the actual name of the file system is called soup. And it had uh, sort of a very it sounds like it had a very different style of storing files than you would find on the Mac. So it was basically, it's basically instead of like a proper file system, it's more of a file database and just kind of a, yeah, I, like I said, I don't have the the low level operating system knowledge to quite understand the fine details here, but um, it was completely different than what you would find on the Mac. So any kind of interchange between them had to be in terms of, uh, I guess, you know, very basic file objects that one could, that one could understand and the other could interpret. Like this is the kind of work that it, it was very relegated to like this one platform uh, that even though it was licensed out, like we've discussed, the Newton was not a, a very big smash success. And the the work that some people are putting in on their nights and weekends and and fun hobby time off to keep the platform alive in the modern times is a uh, is remarkable. I guess one thing that Soup had that is kind of interesting in terms of comparing it to modern file systems is that it had native support for tagging, so files could be tagged, and I guess this was part of the database and file system structure, which is interesting because I think. So in HFS Plus, you can have finder tags that were introduced a few versions of OS X ago, um, but those are stored as HFS Plus extended attributes. And I think, but I'm not sure, that in Apple file system, there's going to be some sort of native file system support for tagging. So one one more Apple feature back from the dead uh, 30, 30 years on. Um, and another indication of the fact that the Newton was really trying a lot of new things. Um, it was a platform that was designed to be, in some ways, a companion to the Mac, but really it, it, it was designed to overtake the Mac. It never did. Um, and they lived side by side for, for a good long time, but it had so much new technology in it, um, from the pressure-sensitive screen to handwriting and... Um, the 
new wireless technology and a new file system. It was really its entire own platform, obviously working on different uh, processor architecture than Macs still do, although who knows? Yeah. <laughs> uh, who knows when you're listening to this? Um, but as we record, no our Macs yet. But there are all of these little all of these little threads that make it an obviously Apple product and the kind of, it all of the decisions that went into it are the kind of decisions that give us the Apple products that we've had in the intervening years, but it was really unto itself. And again, to like all these circles we've gone in, especially recording this episode about the Newton on the the day of the iPhone's 10th anniversary, uh, the, the parallels are, yeah, very, very apparent. So that wraps up our coverage of the Newton. But like we said, you know, we don't really have a whole lot of primary experience with Newton. And we know that there are lots of good Newton user stories out there. So if you're a listener who has probably been yelling at us for the past hour or so, <laughs> because we we don't know that much about the Newton, if you have good stories about your experience with the Newton or the features or of either the hardware or the software that we missed that really made it this special platform, please get in touch with us through the usual ways. You can either find us on Twitter. Uh, the show Twitter is simple underscore beep, or you may have a longer story to tell us, and you can send us an email through contact form on our website, which is simplebeep.com. We're also individually on Twitter. I'm at Bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.